Welcome back. Chris Williams Podcast. Well, we have four episodes on the books, and this one, number five, will keep you around and make you appreciate life just a little bit more. Now, I need followers. I need listeners. So tell a friend and pass the word that the Chris Williams Podcast Hour isn't so bad. Actually, we're a lot of fun. Make sure you are following us on social media. I have some really, really, really good giveaways that will be announced soon. But the only hint I have in order to win is that you have to be following us. So on IG and Twitter, you can find the Chris Williams Podcast Hour at the at sign, the Chris Will Pod, and on Facebook, the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Now, this week's podcast features one of the greatest trainers in the history of boxing, Ronnie Shields. What's that? You don't know the name? Or you don't know who he is? Well, you probably know his work. Ronnie Shields trained Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson, the late Arturo Gatti, and the late, great, and one of the greatest boxers of all time, Pernell Sweet P. Whitaker. Now, the interview with uh, Ronnie Shields helps me recall many wonderful memories and great stories about teammates, coaches, and friends. It made me look back and appreciate all the people who have bled with me and fought side by side with me through some of the toughest times. It helped me realize while it might not be the physical struggles we end up missing out on when we're away from team, but the camaraderie and the unforeseeable and inevitable solutions to life's problems that all those guys together help us overcome. Now, I was going to talk about the hardest thing physically I've ever had to endure, which is a two-hour Coach Sheridan in 90-degree heat two-a-day practice. But instead, I'm going to tell a story about a recent encounter I had with an older gentleman that really, really made me pause and think. So this week I had to go to a gym and check on some things that were supposed to be happening, but were not happening at all. Now, while I was waiting to meet with my client, I noticed this elderly gentleman who was initially sitting in his car when I pulled into the parking lot. Now, he made his way inside and began to frantically wave me down. Now, normally I would have ignored ignored him because I didn't know this guy. I had never seen him before, and... You know, like I said, I don't know this guy, but he was so adamant and he was also struggling with a walker. So he made his way over to me and just started talking. He's like, hey, how are you? How you been? He starts telling me about all the things that happened to him in the last week. And I kid you not, this elderly man tried to pull a chair over with one hand and drag his walker over with the other. So, of course, I ran over and got the chair. And he says to me, now you sit in this chair and I'm going to sit in that chair. Before I could stop him, the the man was pulling up his pant leg and trying to show me and tell me how he injured himself, trying not to use his bad knee. Now, the cut was awful. And I said, man, you need to show that to someone immediately. He said, well, that's why I'm showing it to you. 
at this point, I was caught up. I asked him, I was like, so when did it happen? And he said, well, you know, the other day I twisted my knee. So I was trying not to use my bad knee and fell. Sir, how long ago did this happen? Oh, I twisted the knee when I hurt my hip and stomach. You remember when I had that muscle surgery? I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I, I had to stop the guy. I couldn't let this carry on. I said, sir, I'm not here. I'm here to see one of the athletes. I'm not with the physical therapy team. He was kind of confused and asked, well, you're not? And I was like, oh. So finally, my client came out and all the frustration all the frustration and anger I had towards him, it was gone. I was suddenly at peace and told my guy, I was like, here, this is what you need to do. This is when it has to be done by. And that was it. There was no yelling, no screaming. So we had an, an agreement, a nice little COVID pound. And suddenly his selfish and childish behavior was no longer important. And that was big for me because I usually kill a deal in a minute. I mean, I leave money on a table when I get angry, and that's just one of my weaknesses. So anger. I need anger management. But I immediately turned my attention back to the elderly man and explained to him once again who I was. And he said, I know, but we were having such a good discussion. Do you really need to go and cut this visit short? Oh, my gosh, I melted. So it was probably another 45 minutes later before his physical therapist came and I went back to my t my car and actually left. So I tell you this because in this climate we currently live in, this inequality, the anger, the racism, the human brutality, the pandemic, whatever is bad in your life, whatever is making up your 2020. When we take the time to stop and actually listen, and when I say listen, listen with an open mind and not an already formulated opinion, when we listen to the other people's stories, their opinions, their tragedies, etc., it'll chill you. It'll stop you in your tracks and make you think that maybe I need to adjust my approach or maybe, just maybe, other people do have a point. So when you listen to this episode with Ronnie Shields, please pay close attention to what he has endured to accomplish his success. The tragedy, the weight of what he has had to carry mentally, it's heavier than anything I can imagine I could deal with. Yet, he didn't quit and found a way to have success. Now, I hope this podcast motivates at least one person to overcome a challenge that has hindered their success or allows them to just listen, listen with an open mind. For me, it already has. This is the Chris Williams Podcast Very interesting story. Well, all our stories are interesting, 
But this one is especially gripping because there are so many layers to, of success, tragedy, and a nice rise to celebrity. Uh, let me introduce you to today's guest, a renowned trainer that has had the opportunity to train fighters you might have heard of, like Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, and the late but great fighters, Pernell Sweet Pete Whitaker, Vernon Forrest, and Arturo Gatti. A legend inside the ring himself and one of the all-time best U.S. amateur boxers, who, as you will soon find out, narrowly avoided one of the most tragic moments in U.S. Olympic team boxing history, a man considered to be one of boxing's greatest trainers. Please welcome to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, Ronnie Shields. Ronnie Shields, welcome. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be on. Uh, it, it's our pleasure. Believe me when I say it's our pleasure. It's not, you know, often that we get to talk to somebody of your celebrity, but let's Let's get into this by talking about your time inside the ring, the thing that molded you as a trainer. You were a tremendous – you had a tremendous amateur career. Uh, you were a National Junior Olympics featherweight champ, a National Golden Gloves featherweight champ, a two-time National Golden Gloves welterweight champ. Talk about the attention you were getting and some of the memories that you have from your accomplishments as an amateur boxer. Well, you know, as an amateur boxer, man, I – I did. I had a great career, man. I really, you know, I really was in love with boxing since the age of 13 years old. You know, I used to watch boxing with my father growing up, you know, and then when I turned 13 years old, you know, actually I wanted to be a football player. And, you know, I was too small, but, you know, I still wanted to be a football player until, you know, um, one day I went out for the team, I made the team, and then they, they shut our school down and transferred us to another school. And then they told me I had to go out all over again. And it really kind of made me mad. So I, you know, what I did was I said, you know what, I'm going to just go with my friends to the boxing gym. I did that. And I fell in love with the sport right then and right there. And that's been my whole life. But, I mean, but amateur boxing, man, was, it was such a, such a great time for me in my life. You know, we I traveled, got to travel all over the United States. Then when I became of age, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get on the United States boxing team, and I was able to go to travel to different countries and fight against the day best fighters from other countries. And, I mean, it was just it was a blast, man. I really, really had a great time, and I really loved boxing at that moment. Okay. Okay. Now, your your success allowed you to be part of the 18, 1980 Summer Olympic team as a member of the U.S. Olympic boxing team. But, you know, the U.S. was boycotting those games. They were supposed to be held in Moscow. Um, the, the whole Cold War thing was happening. Now, did you and your teammates at that time know that there might not be participation in those summer games? What was kind of going through you guys' head at that time? Well, everybody knew that, that we wasn't going to the Olympics. But, you know, actually, <clears throat> I lost a controversial decision to Johnny Bumpers in the uh, in Olympic trials. And then they decided not to go to the Olympics, so, they, so I couldn't fight him again in a box-off to see who originally was get to, going to get to go to the Olympics. So they just said whoever won the first time, they was going to make them as a representative of the USA team. So I never got to do that. But, you know, and, and that's what happened 
on that end. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and that that had to, you know, you hear so many Olympic stories about guys that, you know, even from Floyd Mayweather to Roy Jones and, you know, some of the decisions, controversial decisions, but it didn't deter them away from the sport. And obviously it didn't take you away. So, you know, your love for the sport, you know, really shines through. So, but, you know, you talk about traveling and uh, select members of that team got a chance to go fight in exhibitions in Europe. And sadly enough, one of the flights that was supposed to go over there crashed and you lose 22 members of the team, boxers, trainers, and doctors. Do you remember when they announced those ex- exhibitions and the general excitement about going to Europe to have a chance to fight? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Man. I I was supposed to be on that plane. I was selected first to go to go over there. To, to go. I think we were getting ready to go to Poland. And I... I took sick. I, I, had, I caught the flu. Of all things, I caught the flu. And I still wanted to go. And my mother told me, no, we're going to take you to the doctor first. If the doctor say you're okay, then you can go. Then you can go. So I said, okay. So my mom took me to the doctor. The doctor said, you have the flu. I don't suggest that you travel. So I didn't. I didn't go. And they had to call somebody else up to go in my place. And oh. unfortunately for everyone that was on that plane, they got killed, you know. And, yeah. you know, I think about that a lot. You know, sometimes I think about it too much, actually. And I just, you know, I just reflect on, you know, why I guess God wasn't ready for me at that time because, you know, I definitely got sick at the right time for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And if if I if I wasn't sick, then I definitely would have went on it. I definitely would have went. I wouldn't be here today. Right, right. So you're definitely blessed. So you know, I just can't imagine what you know. That downtime you have when you're just sitting there thinking about things, and that's one of the things you reflect on. I can't imagine, you know, the feelings that go through you. So you are definitely blessed. So, you know, you're blessed and you turn pro in August of 1980, five months after the tragedy. And, like, you know, you're 20 years old at that time. How heavy was that on you? You know, you're turning pro, you're still thinking about that. That whole tragedy is heavy for a 20-year-old. So, you know, a 50-year-old would even have. But how how was that for you? Well, I just, you know, I just decided that I would never forget that, that I would always pay homage to all of the guys that did eventually go on that flight and die, you know. So, you know, uh, that's something that I, I don't ever want to forget because I feel like I'm blessed and I feel that, I really owe owe everybody, you know. I mean, I just owe it to them to to fight and to keep on because I think each one of those guys that was on that plane would have been a professional, and some of them had the potential to be world champions. But you know, it was just their time to go, and so right. I just, you know, I just I just thank God that you know that I was able to continue my career.
And, you know, and I just, you know, said I would never, that I never wanted to forget that day. And that's something I never will. Okay. Okay. Now, in in your humble opinion, your honest opinion, as far as uh, remembering them, what is probably the best thing you've ever done to re- to just carry on their memory? Well, just you know, just always uh, try to always just you know just train hard and just try to be the best person I could possibly be, you know, to help others, to just. You know, to just be a, a genuinely good person and to just let their, the memory of those guys to always be embedded in me and to never forget that, you know, never forget anybody that was on that team, you know, because okay. they were my teammates. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, you go on to have a pretty successful pro career. You have a record of 26-6-1, and 19 KOs. So talk about your pro career. Talk about the highs and lows, and here we love storytelling. So please share a good story or two that you have from your fighting days. Well, you know, for me, man, I, you know, like, I've been, like I said, I've been boxing since I was 13 years old. I had 263 amateur fights, you know, and 33 pro fights. So, you know, that's a pretty long career. But yes. being a professional was really, really, it was really fun at the beginning. And then about two years into it, you know, all the injuries started happening for me. Uh, I really, at some, some fights, I couldn't even pick my, my hands up because my elbows were so bad. I used to take cortisone shots every fight. Every fight I had to take cortisone shots because my elbows were so bad on both of them. And some, sometimes I would get hit on it, and, man, I just would have tears come out of my eyes because it was hurting so bad. And, but, you know, but I pushed on. You know, I, I, never, mm-hmm. I never quit in a fight. I just kept on fighting. And, you know, I was able to block the pain out and just keep on working. And... I mean, it was tough at times, but, you know, but i tell you, it's just one fight. I fought this guy. His name was Monroe Brooks. Monroe Brooks is one of the best fighters ever. He fought Roberto Duran. He fought a bunch of guys back then. He was a little bit older than me, but, you know, but he fought a lot of great guys. And I remember in the very first round of that fight, you know, I had problems with my elbows, but everything was working good for me. Then all of a sudden, he threw a right hand. I saw it coming, and I tried to duck it, and he caught me right on my ear, and mm. he popped my eardrum. I mean, I heard oh, a wow. sound that I've never heard before in my life. And it was just, I mean, I couldn't hear anything else but this sound in my ear. I never experienced nothing like that before in my life. And that was the very first round, and it was a 10-round fight. And so I went back to the corner, and I, all I was doing was grabbing my ears. And my, my manager, he kept saying, what's wrong, what's wrong? I said, I think he busted my eardrum, you know. He said, well, you just got to suck it up. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he said, you just got to suck it up. And I'm like, man, I can't, you know. I said, you got to talk louder. I can't hear you, you know. 
And this oh, sound man. was just, and then the next thing I know, the bell rang, and they pushed me up. And, man, I mean, I fought that fight. I don't know how I went through 10 rounds with that weight, but I did. I won the fight, you know, and I was just so happy to hear the final bell. And I won the fight. Right. And I, I still don't know how I won that fight. Wow. Wow. So, so was your equilibrium off as well? I mean, I, I can't imagine what it was like. One, you can't hear. Two, you're fighting that, that old balance thing. So, Yeah, I mean, it was tough, man. I mean, it really was. But, you know, the, the good thing about it was that, you know, I still – I just had the sound. That sound, it was just like a buzzing sound in my ear. And I, you know, I could, I could hear uh, when you talk, it's like it, it was a faded, a faded, a fadeaway sound. You know, mm-hmm. that's the way it was. And I was, I was looking at my trainer, and he was giving me instructions. But I, you know, like I caught like every other word. You know? Oh, wow. And it, it, was, it was a fadeaway sound that I've never heard before in my life. I mean, it was crazy. And actually, I told a friend of mine about it. And about three fights later, it happened to him. Oh. And it was it was a crazy situation. That is that is that, that's one you don't hear about all the time. I mean, some <laughs> of the things that fighters go through. That's definitely one I have not heard. So, all right. So moving forward, you win your first first pro title, the NABF title, in 1983 in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. What do you remember about that night or about that fight against Saul Mambi? Saul Mambi. Yeah, as a matter of fact, a friend of mine just sent me a picture of that fight, a picture with me and Saul. Saul, man, I, I used to follow Saul Mambi a lot because you know, at the time he was champion when I turned professional. He was the world champion. And I said, man, I, I want to fight this dude one day. And, you know, Saul, Saul was he was already up in age when, when he, mm-hmm. he was fighting, when he was world champion. But he had been around a long time. He was smart. He knew a lot. And I got to meet him a few times because we both fought for Don King. So we fought on a couple cars together, and I always watched him. And so when I got the opportunity to fight him, you know, I knew it was going to be a tough fight because of all the experience that he had. And it was a, it was a tough fight, but... I ended up winning, and, you know, but he, he was one of my heroes, man. So Saul was one of the guys that I wanted to pattern my career after. Okay. Okay. All right. So, you know, you fight for eight years, and then you finally retire in 1988. But, like you no, said, no, you had no, a no, love no, for no. the – No, no, no. I'm... I never retired. You didn't retire. You quit. I quit. I quit. See, every, everybody that retire can come back. When you quit, okay. you can never come back from a quit. All right. I like that. I'll have to remember that. I like that. So you quit in 88. I but quit. You have a love, yeah. But you have a love for boxing, and you stay in the game as a trainer. So how did you transform from becoming, you know, from being a boxer and quitting boxing to becoming a trainer. How did that come about? Well, I got to go back to when I was 13 years old. 
uh, down in my hometown of Port Arthur, Texas, we had over 30 fighters in the gym, all amateur fighters, and we only had four trainers. So they came to us one day and said, look, there's no way in the world we can train 30 guys with four people. You know, it just don't add up. So they say, two guys are going to have to help us to do pads with everybody. You know, once you finish training, then you got to come. Because we train at certain times, then you got to come back and help to train the other fighters. So, you know, I mean, I really didn't know anything about the thing, but they taught us how to do that. And I really enjoyed doing the pads and helping helping the guys out. Then, we was, you know, we went to a tournament, and, man, it was like, you know, they had like four rings because it was like so many people. And we had all our guys, so we had guys fighting at the same time in different rings. So remember, we only have four trainers, so they said, look, you're going to go have to go over here and help this one. You're going to have to help this one. You're going to have to help that one. And so we had to do that to help each other. And I really enjoyed working the corners. I, I really enjoyed doing it. And it just became a habit for me throughout my whole career, throughout my whole amateur career. I was always doing it always going to different amateur shows and working the fights and doing that. Oh, wow. I really enjoyed it. And so, okay. uh, so once I, I quit fighting, then uh, I said I was going to just take a break for a little while. But then George Benton and Lou Duva came to our gym and they saw me doing the pads with somebody and they came and asked me would I be interested in working with George. And I said, uh, nah, I really don't want to do it. So I turned them down. And then about wow. a month later, they came, they came back. And Lou said, look, man, we really need you. He said, you know, George needs a lot of help. You know, so I said, you know what, I'll give it a try. So the first day I go into the gym, the first guy they threw me in was Evander Holyfield. They said, okay, you got to do like four rounds on the pass of the event. That four rounds turned into eight rounds because he wanted to keep going. So I did eight rounds oh. with him. Then, then as soon as I finished him, I said, okay, come on, you got Melvin. So I got in there with Melvin Taylor. Did the thing to get the uh, pass with him. Then I said, oh, we got Rocky Locks. You got to do the pass with Rocky Locks. I must have did about 20 rounds of pads that day. And everybody, wow. every day, everybody wanted, wanted me to keep doing the pads with him. I said, hold up, man. Oh, one guy. Y'all can't kill me. I say, look, we got to stop spreading you guys out. I say, man, because back to back to back to back, I can't do this. You know, I say, man, I, I'll be. I say, y'all kill me in a, in a month, man. So finally, we start spreading each other, spreading these guys out, and you know, George would get in to the past too, and you know, and but it's just something that you know, I think it was my calling to be a trainer. Okay. All right. So, you know, you, you talk about uh, you train guys while you, while you were an amateur boxer. So who were you able to learn from? Who were some of your mentors as far as trainers as you're com- working your way up to where you are now? Well, uh, you know, I guess, I guess the professor, number one, George Benton. You know, he, I trained under George for almost 10 years. So he was definitely one of the guys that, you know, I learned so much from him. 
Lou Dugan wasn't a trainer, but Lou, Lou was a motivator. And he, mm-hmm. Lou had been in the gym with, with all the old greats, you know, Jack Dempsey and all of those guys way back then, you know, Rocky Marciano, you know. He had been in the gym with those guys. So, you know, he, he saw how they did things, and, you know, and I learned a lot of stuff from him, too, from him telling me what these guys used to do and how he did it, you know, and then the, the, the late great Emmanuel Stewart. Uh, I met Emmanuel when I was 15 years old. I fought Terminators twice in amateurs, and we split one and one. But that's why I met Emmanuel. And he went once I became a professional trainer, we used to run into each other all the time, and we used to talk all the time. And so once I got on my own and started training fighters on my own, after, after the main events era, then me and Emmanuel used to talk all the time. And, oh, wow. You know, I, I used to ask him so many questions. If I had a problem with a style or something like that, hey, I just fix up phone and call Emmanuel, you know, and he would tell me what to do, how to do it, you know. And we, you know, it was so funny when, when, when uh, I was training Mike Tyson and he fought Lennox Lewis. People saw me and Emmanuel together every day. Hey, man, y'all fighting as each other. Look, man, our friendship um, is important. So we're not talking about our fight. We're talking about each other. And we're talking about, you know, different things that we went through together. So, you know, I mean, so Emmanuel was really, really, he, he was a master, a master trainer, man. He was, he was a, a person that you could really talk to and, you know, and he explained everything so well that it made so much sense, you know, and it really worked. And, and I would tell the guys, hey, man, I had to call the manual and listen. And he said, well, I'm glad they said, I'm glad you knew him. You know, it was fun. It was, it was great, man. Yeah, so, and unfortunately, you know, he passed away a few years back. So, so now when you get in the jam, who do you call? Who do you, who do you reach to? Are you at that level where you, you've pretty much seen it all? Yeah, I've pretty much seen it all. I mean, I really don't call anybody right now. But, you know, um, I got a guy that, that helps me train some of my fighters now. He just retired since this COVID thing started, you know, he's 80 years old and he okay. just retired just a few months ago. Well, I call him now and, you know, he's been with me forever. He was one of my trainers and I call him a lot. His name is Creed Fountain. And I, I call Mr. Creed all the time, talk to him about whatever I need to talk to him about. And, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll help me. he walked me through it. Okay. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you about a fighter later, but right now I want to know what it is that you think or what you believe are the ingredients to make a great trainer. Wow, that's kind of hard to say, man. Because you know, I mean, it's easy for me to say for myself, but for others, I, it's hard to say because some people say you have to have been in a game blah, 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 been a fighter, you know, and that's been proven wrong because there's been other good trainers and great trainers that's never been a fighter before that became good trainers. So I think, you know, in order to be a good trainer, though, you have to be willing to study, 
other fighters and study your own fighter to know what the best qualities that your fighter possess. And then when you match him, when he's matched up against whoever they match him up with, you know, you got to see what the quality, what the best qualities that they have and then what the not so best qualities that they have. And then you got to mend all of that together and that's how you come with a, a, a game plan. Okay. Okay. All right. And, and so when you're putting together this game plan, you know, you, I, I know you're competitive. You, you were a former fighter. Obviously you're a trainer now, but when you're putting together these game plans, how excited do you get when you go against, you know, another big time trainer? Um, like for example, Freddie Roach, how do you view that battle in your mind? Is it a battle between in the minds of trainers or, you know, how do you go into there about matching wits? I guess, I guess that's the best way to say it. You know, how do you go into a fight? You're matching wits with another great trainer. How big is that when you're putting together the game plan? Oh, I love that. Man. I love that. That's a, that, you know, that's what a competitive is. I mean, that's why the competitive thing comes, comes out of you because you want, you know, definitely you want your guy to win. But, you know, it's like defeating a world champion when you say, okay, this guy, I know he has a lot of champions. I know he's worked with a lot of different fighters. He's seen about every style. So I know my fighter's style is not something he hasn't seen before. So what do I do to offset what he's going to do? But I, mean, I love nice. that challenge. I do. I really really I I really get off to that kind of challenge like that. Okay. And do the fighters feed off of you when they, they see you're excited about, you know, the chess match that you're gonna get into? Oh, absolutely. They they love it. They love it because they know you know, they can tell by the workouts that I put them through. You know, they okay. know. Uh oh. First thing that, uh oh, we got a challenge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's good. That's good stuff. All right. So now you've trained, like like I said, you trained Tyson, Tua, um, and, th- and those are guys who come out and attack their opponents. Then you have guys like Pernell Whitaker and uh, Arislan Lara that you trained who kind of play chess and seem to be more cerebral. How do you, as a trainer, adapt to so many different styles? You know, I mean, actually, you know, for me, just being a game for so long, man, you know, I've seen everything, you know. And I tell guys today, you know, you're not going to show me nothing that I've never seen before, you know. But mm-hmm. being in the gym with a guy like a Pernell Whitaker, man, it was, let me tell you something, man, that probably was some of the happiest times of my life because you don't feel no pressure, none whatsoever with this guy because of who he was, because this guy knew everything about the sport. And he was the most confident guy that I've ever been around in my life. I've never been around a guy more confident than, than Pernell Sweepy Whitaker. And he was born to be a, a fighter. He was born to be a fighter, you know. And in the gym, man, he did things that, I probably used to try to do, <laughs> but I could never do. You know, this yeah, guy, okay. man, he, was, he, he was a magician in a way. He really was. 
he was a magician in the ring. And he's probably been, you know, I've seen a lot of fighters, but I've never seen a fighter as good as Fernando Whitaker. Oh, wow. Wow. That's a, that's a heck of a statement because you've seen a lot of good fighters. That is a heck of a statement. So, you know, he uh, unfortunately passed a couple years ago. Do you remember getting the call uh, about his passing and what was going through your mind? Were you just reminiscing? Yeah, I, I talked to him like two weeks before it happened. We was, uh, we were supposed to meet in Las Vegas, and I was going to see him. It was, you see, when he died, I was going to see him two weeks later mm-hmm. than when he died because uh, the PBC was going to bring him out to Las Vegas to do, you know, that would bring legends to, to fights. And he was one of the legends that he was going to bring to Las Vegas for that fight. So, you know, I was, he called me up. He said, hey, man, I'm coming to Vegas. He said, he said I'll be there. I said, okay, cool. So, we, you know, we, we talked for a little while. And then once we hung up, you know, two weeks later, he died. Oh, that's rough. That's rough. Yeah. So, all right. So you, we have to lighten the mood up a little bit here. I, I mean, I, I just – you faced a lot of tragedy, a lot of, uh, you know, adversity. So well, let's talk about Mike Tyson. So, And I know you have to be able to give me one good Mike Tyson story. <laughs> oh, let me see. Uh, okay, I'll give, give you one. So we're in the gym, and so I told Mike, I said, listen, we've been training now about maybe a month, four weeks, and so we had about four weeks to go. So I said, look, you got to go 10 rounds on Saturday. So he looked up at me and said, what? I said, yeah, you got to go 10 rounds. He said, man, I haven't been 10 rounds, and I can't tell you how many years. He says, I've been 10 rounds on the gym. I say, well, you're going to do it this time. I say, you got to go 10 rounds. So, you know, and the gym was kind of rocky at first, so for the first couple of weeks. But then we start getting the rhythm, a good rhythm, after about the first month. And so I felt mm-hmm. it was time for him to pick up the sparring. So I told him, I said, man, we're going to do 10 rounds. So we had five guys. So I said, man. You you got five guys, so it's it's not like that's going to be a problem, you know. He said, but you see how big those guys are? You know, he said, man, I'm fighting Lenny Lewis. I said, I know who you're fighting. It's okay. So I picked three guys out. I said, look, you can go three, you know, you can go ten rounds, but you can go four with this guy, three with this guy, and three with that guy. I said, that's it. I don't want to hear nothing. This is is the way it's going to be. Okay, you're the coach. We'll go do it. So I said, now. I said, here's the thing. I said, Mike, you go on four rounds with this guy, but if you stop him in one round or two rounds, that count as four. Man, oh, I said, what? I said, yeah. I said, that counts. And I said, same with the next guy. I said, if you stop him in one, you're supposed to go three. That count as three. He said, what? I said, yeah. So he said, okay, let's do it. 
the first guy, man, the first guy went three. And the, the fourth round, Mike hurt him, so we had to pull him out. So he didn't make the whole four with that guy. The second guy, one round. The third guy, two rounds. I mean, he was, you know, he liked that idea. So I said, hey, you know, we're going to keep using that. But then he didn't realize that we brought in some more guys that I know could go rounds with him. And he really had to do the 10. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Now, was he as uh, as bad intended as as he's portrayed uh, inside the ring, not outside the ring, but inside the ring? Have you met anybody with that that dark competitiveness, for lack of a better way oh. to describe it? Man, you know, he is a competitor. He's a fierce competitor. He is. He's all of that. But I've, you know, I have other guys. Vander Holyfield was the same way. In the gym, man, Vander was a, a beast in the gym. He wouldn't. He didn't want anybody to get the best of him in the gym. But Chad Whitaker was the same way, you know. And yes. so many fighters that I that worked with was the same way. Dave was a, you know, very competitive inside the gym. Okay. Okay. All right. Now. You're training a fighter. Um, you feel like the camp is one of your best ever. Have you ever had such a great camp that you were just sure that it, you were going to have a victory? And then your fighter goes out and just lays an egg. It's just like, this isn't the same guy I've trained. Have you ever had that situation? And how'd you deal with it? Uh, I've had that plenty of times. I've had that a lot. You know, I think. In all of my years of training, yeah, that that happens more than often. I mean, more than not. You know, it happens oh, wow. a lot. You know, it just it's just one of those things, man. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it be that way. You know, and I don't know, man. It, it uh, there's nothing really you can do about it. You know, you have to accept it for what it is. Okay. I got you. And so, and so on the flip side of that, have you had guys that are, you know, you, you're training somebody and you're like, man, what am I doing? Why am I even working with this guy? Then he gets in the <laughs> ring, they they ring the bell, and he is lights out. And you're just like, that's not the same dude. <laughs> have you had that? Yeah. Oh, I had that a lot too, absolutely. You know, you know but in my experience, being, being in, a, in a gym for so long, you know, I realized that, some guys are just not gym fighters, and but they're great in the real fight. And some guys are gym fighters, but they're terrible in the real fight, you know. And I've experienced so much of that so many times in my career. Okay. Gotcha. All right. All right. So and I know your plate is pretty full, so... On September 26th, you have a big fight coming up. Uh, Jamal Charlo, your fighter, uh, battles Sergey Derevchenko. I'll try to pronounce that correctly, but that is a big fight. Um, talk about how much you like this fight, how you see it playing out, and is there anything about this fight that makes you uncomfortable? 
Well, you know, I've been studying Sergey for for a little while now, and I realize he's a really good fighter, you know, that he's everything that people say he is. And, you know, I know know we're in for a tough night, but, you know, I'm so confident in what my guy can do. I know what he can do, and I know what he's going to do. And, you know, uh, it's going to be a tough fight, though, you know, and we – I've been working for a while now on this game plan, and I feel really comfortable where we're at right now. So, but, you know, we can't take anything from Sergey. Like, he fought Danny Jacobs to a really, really close fight. You know, everybody thought he beat Triple G, which I, I did too. And mm-hmm. he lost a, a close, unanimous decision to Triple G. But, you know, I think that Jamal Charlo is better than Danny Jacobs, and I think he's better than Triple G. So I think, you know, but action speaks louder than words. So this is something that we have to go out and prove. And there's one thing I tell the fighters, all all the fighters that I work with, is that you can talk all you want to. It doesn't matter. Show it in the ring. Once you show it in the ring, no matter what anybody says, you've already proved it. And that's what we're going to do on September 26th, prove that Jamal Charles is the real middleweight champion in the world. Nice. Nice. And so how frustrating is it for you as well as Jamal from, you know, conversations, just hearing these other middleweights talk and, and you guys can't get him in the ring? How frustrating is that? Well, it's not frustrating at all for me, for me being a trainer, because I know how it works. You know, I know how things have to have to be, and no matter how what you tell it to a fighter, you know, they just don't understand. But a lot of fighters, you know, it's hard to make fights because because of different networks, and because this promoter don't like that promoter, or you know, or whatever, you know. But the, the main thing is. When you fight on two different networks, it's hard. It's tough. You know, Jamal is contracted to Showtime, you know. Right. Canelo, Demetrius Andre, and everybody else is contracted to the zone. So, you know, so unless they do for do a, a thing like Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, when Mike, Mike Tyson was with Showtime, Lennox Lewis was with HBO, so they, you know, they put their funds together. And they, and they did the pay-per-view that way. So it happens sometimes, but that was a huge fight. And this is not such a heavyweight fight, you know. So, you know, but for me, I know, I know what it takes for it to happen. And I guess it's just not enough money in the pot right now for, for things to come together all the time. Right, right. Right. And, you know, as a fan, that's kind of frustrating. But, you know, understanding yeah. the business side of it, it's, it happens. So, and it's just – and I wish that fans would understand that more and not send so much venom towards the fighters. Like, they're afraid to get in the ring. I mean, these guys, they get in the ring, as, as you well know, you know, you're risking your life anytime you get in the ring against anybody you face. Absolutely. So – 
that's a big part of it. So, all right, I want you to take off your trainer hat for a second and, and put on your fan hat. And as a fan, who are some of the fighters that you like right now? And, of course, anybody that you train. But who are some of the fighters that you like right now? Well, I'm not going to name anybody that, that I train. But Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I love Errol Spence. I love the way this kid fights. You know, he, he's a, to me, he's a true fighter. You know, I love everything about him. Um, I love Danny Garcia. I love Sean Porter. Uh, I mean, I love Terrence Crawford. You know, I think the welterweight division, personally, is my favorite division because okay. there's so many good fighters in that division. You know, you got Virgil Ortiz, who's up and coming. You got uh, Jaron Ennis, who's up and coming. You know, those guys, man, you know, I would say in another year, those guys will be able to compete with everybody that I just named. But the top guys, yes. Spence, Danny Garcia, Sean Porter, Terrence Crawford, you know, those guys will be able to. But then I, I look at Canelo Alvarez. You know, I mean, I really, I'm really a big fan of Canelo. I really like the way he fights. And that's why I like for my guys to fight him. Because, you know, I think we should always try to fight the best. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's definitely one of the best fighters out there. So I love Lomachenko. I think this kid was born to be a fighter. He reminds me so much of Padel Whitaker that this kid, man, you know, I think only a certain few people were, was born to be a fighter. And Lomachenko, he was definitely one. And, uh, okay. um, That's a heck of a compliment. That is really a huge compliment. Yeah, this, this kid can fight, man. He he he's really really that good. I mean, I really mm-hmm. like this kid a lot. Um, and I I gotta go outside for one of my guys because he's an older guy, and you know he's a he's a regular world champion right now. But Guillermo Rigondeaux. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you something, and I'm gonna go outside of him outside because. I respect this kid so much, you know. He's 39 years old, and, man, I'm telling you, the way he trains is unbelievable, the way he trains. And he's always trying to help everybody in the gym. Oh, wow. No matter how tired he is, you know, he can just finish training. You can see he's exhausted. But then when somebody comes in, he jumps up in there and starts showing, showing them things, you know. That's, you know, I mean, I love that about him, you know, but he's just a, you know, he was born to be a fighter also. So, he, you know, he's one of my favorites that I, that I train. And, I mean, uh, and you go back to divisions. I mean, the heavyweights, I'm not too fond of a lot of heavyweights right now because, I don't know, I mean, I just, you know, it's hard to pick one heavyweight to me that's really that good that can say he's the best in the world. Because I think mm-hmm. as we've seen, as we've seen, you know, Joshua got knocked out, Deontay got knocked out, Tyson Fury, Wilder really knocked him out. And, you know, they gave him a long count. So I call that a knockout. But, you know, but these guys, man, they all over the place in the heavyweight division right now. So it's hard to pick up 
pick one guy. But, you know, and the cruiserweights, I really don't know too many of those guys. But the light heavyweights, light heavyweight division is a, is a decent division. But then the 68 pounds, I got to put Canelo in two divisions because he's ranked in both. In 68, I guess he's a world champion there. And then in 160, he's a franchise champion. But overall, you know, he probably, the, he probably, he probably missed the boxing right now. More people probably pay attention to Canelo Alvarez than anybody in the sport right now. So, and he deserved that honor because, you know, he went through it with Floyd and then came back and, you know, won world titles and, and fought Triple G twice and they split one and one. And now, mm-hmm. you know, he's probably, he's probably one of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the world today. And, okay. you know, I went through the welterweights already, but the junior middleweights, the junior middleweights is a really, really good division now also. With Jamel Charlo, with Jamel Charlo, you know that's Jamal's mm-hmm. twin brother. I used to train Jamel. Mm-hmm. Jamel is, yes. you know, I, I think he's a, I think he's a top guy at 154 pounds right now. I really and truly believe that, and I think he's going to prove that on the 26th when he fight when he fight Jason Rosario. I love that's Jason Rosario fight. as a fighter. It's a tough fight for both guys, but I just think Jamel. In the end, it's going to show that he's better. I think he's going to prove that. And then we went through the welterweight, the, the, the junior welterweights. There's so many of them out there, too. You know, so many good fighters at, at 140, man. It's, it's hard to pick one guy to say, okay, this guy is the best. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just tough. You know, just like the lightweights, you know. Now you got the, these up-and-coming kids, Devin Haney, and – and so many others, others that that's there that that's challenging everybody. Lomachenko, of course, you know I think he's the top dog, but people are calling him out now. So we're going to see what he's made of. Okay. And, okay. But that's that's about the far I can go right now. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, I'm going to name five quick fights, right? Five upcoming okay. fights. And just and just give me your quick opinion on him. The first one, Lomachenko versus Teofimo Lopez. Teofimo Lopez. Uh, you know, I was going I was going to name him. He's a really really good fighter. And look, he's 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 younger than Lomachenko. He thinks he's stronger. He, you know, I've been reading a lot about him, but he's he's talking a lot. You know, he's saying he's going to knock Lomachenko out. You know, I don't see it though. I just, you know, I know. Every fighter is supposed to be confident in themselves, which I know he is. He's very confident in himself. And But looking at the way he fights and looking at Lomachenko, I just don't see him knocking Lomachenko out. I don't see him beating Lomachenko. But, you know, it's, it could be a good fight. But I just think in the later rounds, Lomachenko goes into a different gear than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then Errol Spence Jr. and Danny Garcia. But, I, you know, again, I think Errol, you know, I think since the car accident, Errol has found a, a new lease on life. You know, I think he he finally realized that, you know, that he is a human being and that things can happen 
you know, to human beings. And I think before the accident, you know, if this fight would have happened before the accident, I think Danny Garcia would have really had a good, a great chance to win. But now that Arrow has a new lease on life, I don't think anybody can beat Arrow just right now. Wow, that's a heck of a statement because a lot of people have have been phrasing it the other way since he's been in the accident. We don't know what he's got, you know, physically. So, but that that's that's a nice point of view. Okay, um, Tank Davis, Leo Santa Cruz. I know Javante Davis. Well, here's the thing. I know Tank gets really big in between fights, and. I've known a lot of fighters that did the same thing, and you know, and they 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 get away with it because they they get down and make their weight. It's hard for them, but they get down, they make their weight, and all of a sudden, they go have a lot of trouble trying to get to that weight, and it's going to be tough for Tank to make that weight, but he's going to make it this time because I think. You know, Santa Cruz brings a lot to the table. And it's going to be a good fight, but I think in the end, Tank is going to be too strong for him in the end. Okay. Okay. Now, here's one I don't even know if you care about it, but Fury versus Wilder 3. Can Wilder change anything? Because in my opinion, I, I, and I know you said he, got, he had the knockout, uh, the long count, but would they go 18 rounds? I, I yeah. might have given Wilder <laughs> one round. Yeah, absolutely. But understand something. Wilder, he has one thing that a lot of fighters don't have. He has the, he has the punch. Okay. It only takes one. You know, he had, and he has that one. So, all, you know, and that's all he's looking for. But, and that's the problem right there. He's looking for the one shot, you know. Um, and I don't know if my, my friend, Mark Breland, is going to be involved in the camp for, the, for this next one or not. But, you know, I think it's crazy if he's not there because Mark brings so much experience to the table. And, but, you know, it's going to, it's going to be tough for Deontay regardless, because Tyson Fury now, he has so much confidence that Deontay cannot touch him, you know. And there's a lot of things right. that Deontay did in that fight that that was crazy. You know, number one, coming in with that suitor, you know, mm. that's a no-no. You know, you, that is something that you don't do. You know, I mean, I don't know who advised him to wear something like that. But that's not the thing that lost him the fight. He lost the fight because Tyson Fury's game plan was much better. Okay. That's why he lost it. Okay. It wasn't because of, he came in with this heavy armor thing that he had on or whatever. It wasn't because of that. It was because Tyson Fury's game plan was better. Tyson Fury put his weight on it. He came in much heavier. And Deontay did the cardinal rule mistake that you don't make. Why would you gain 10 pounds more that's going to make you less faster 
than you mm. would if you were 10 pounds lighter. Right. That's another right. mistake he made. You know, you can't match his weight. That's something you can't do. Stay small because that makes you faster. And mm-hmm. when Tyson Fury put, put, put his weight on you, he stood there and tried to fight it off. Instead of just slipping under it and getting around him, he didn't do that. He tried to wrestle with Tyson Fury, wore himself out, and this is why the bigger man won. Got you. Got you. Nice. Nice. That's a great analysis. Great analysis. All right. Fifth and final fight. I hope you're ready for this because this is a big one. All right. I have Canelo, Canelo versus Jamal Charlo. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> well, you know, so I tell you, man, that, that's a fight that, of course, we've been asking for, we've been wanting it for a while now. And, you know, it's it's a tough fight on both ends. But the thing about that I know about my guy, I can't speak for Canelo, but the thing about my guy, my guy rises to the competition. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a fight he's been won for a long time. And once he became the mandatory for Canelo, they made us the champion and Canelo the franchise champion so we didn't have to take yeah. the fight. So the fight couldn't happen. So, you know, and look, I know Canelo never ducked a fight in his life. Okay? I know that. Mm-hmm. But right. it doesn't look good when you have a mandatory guy that's that you know you're supposed to fight, and then you say, you know what, I'm going to go up to light heavyweight, try to win this title, then I'll come back down. And then you go back down to 68, and but you won't come back down to 160 unless it's a huge fight. Well, you know what, maybe after we beat Sergei Devinchenko, then he'll come back down to 160. Or become we'll go up to 168 to fight we have, gotcha. we have no qualms gotcha. about going to one six eight to fight. Okay, all right. Very good stuff. The fans will love hearing that. All right, you know we're gonna have to wrap this up. So let's play a speed round. And what I want you to do, I'm, I'm just gonna throw something out, and I want you to say whatever comes to mind. Okay, just three okay. things. So first one is favorite boxer of all time. But now what? Okay. Now, if you weren't a boxing trainer or if you weren't in boxing, what would you be? Football player. Nice. All right. And your preference uh, of a, from a fighter, a characteristic of a fighter, a big puncher, a slick boxer, or a defensive fighter with a little bit of pop? Slick boxer. Nice. All right. That's it. Um, that's everything I have. But before I leave, I always want my guests to give shameless plugs. So you own a gym. So what's the name of your gym? Uh, how would you describe it? And if I were to come to Texas, how could I train at your gym, and what would I expect? The name of my gym is Randy Shields Boxing, simple. And 
we love for people to come by the gym, check it out. It's not a big gym. It's 1,800 square feet. And, you know, it's, it's a boxing gym. That's what it is. Totally, it's not a fitness gym. When you walk in, the first thing you see is boxing. Everything is boxing. No fitness stuff, none of that stuff. I only wanted to open up a boxing gym, and that's what I have. And the guys in my gym, they love it. They love the way we, we do things. And if you were to come there, you'll see, the first thing you'll see when you walk in there is bags and a ring, and that's all you need. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And what was the name of that gym one more time? Ronnie Shields Boxing. Ronnie Shields Boxing. Love it. Love it. Simple. Now, do you have any uh, website, anything on social media where fans could actually follow or just get in touch with you? I'm on Instagram at official Ronnie Shields. Okay. All right. Well, Ronnie Shields, thank you once again for coming on the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. And best of luck in your world title fight on September 26th. Uh, we are honored to have had you on here. I'm honored to be on your show. I appreciate it.